wanted to send this shout out to Patrick Kettner. Patrick, without sounding too mushy, I just kind of wanted to thank you for being yourself. Having the kind of fundamental decency that everybody should strive for. I think that all the good things that are happening to you in your life are stuff that you deserve. You deserve all of the good things, man. And uh, I say that as a man that prides myself on being real petty. You know what I mean? All these third-person references come up to me whenever I start doing awesome things. And stuff like that isn't... Those things are acts that I know that you are way too decent of a human being to ever really engage in. You are someone to admire, sir. You really are. My name is Eli. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. So, before I get into the topic of this particular episode, I want to tell you a story, okay? Just follow me here. Four days ago, I was at a gym on Venice Boulevard. One of them LA gyms that are super crowded and have all types of body shapes out here doing their gym thing, you know what I'm saying? There was this one guy that was what I like to call a vocal weightlifter. Kind of motherfucker that has to like grunt extra loud with every rep like some kind of a fucking ogre. Anywho, he's one of them super bulky muscle type dudes with the tank tops that are soaked in sweat. You know what a kind of guy this is. Like I, I don't really feel the need to go any further about what he looks like. But anywho, set of treadmills off to yonder and a bunch of TVs that go from wall to wall right above those treadmills. And I thought I was going to get on one of those treadmills and work alone, because the gym was kind of distant between the weights and the cardio. But here came that ogre. And in a row of empty treadmills, he goes to like one or two treadmills across from me. And in my head, I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing here? You can go all the way down there and not bother me. You know what I mean? I commence with my workout anyway. And I noticed he wasn't even on the machine. He just stood there watching TV. The whole time I was on the treadmill, that man was transfixed. And these TVs had no sound. I started thinking like there was some horrible breaking news thing that was on one of his TVs that he was watching, but no, it was just a movie. On mute. On mute. And when I saw that movie, I understood why he was watching it. And that movie was called The Shawshank Redemption. And he was watching that scene. The scene. You know that scene. Andy crawled to freedom through 500 yards of shit-smelling foulness I can't even imagine. Or maybe I just don't want to. Five hundred yards. That's the length of five football fields. Just shy of half a mile. Tim Robbins going through that tunnel, coming out on the other side, hands stretched to the heavens when the rain comes down upon him, crying out in happiness. That is one of the more iconic scenes in all of 1990 cinema, if not cinema as a whole. That is the kind of scene you just stop and watch, even if it's on mute, like that guy, like myself, 
probably had a bunch of memories tied to that one scene. He probably had a bunch of memories too. That man took a break from his grunting and his vocal weightlifting just to bask in that scene. On mute. Motherfucker didn't even get on the treadmill. He just went over to see the scene. And then as soon as it was over, he left me alone. And I tell that story. Because at the time, pretty sure nobody involved with that scene knew the impact that it would have decades later. And one tends to wonder if there were any scenes released recently that may have that kind of cultural impact, whether it be for the good or the bad. Everybody has their opinions on what those scenes might be. And here are mine. These are the most impactful scenes of 2021. I want to give a bit of a shout out to what is the most underrated movie of 2021. A very little known 1990s action throwback called Cop Shop. You got a bunch of alpha type actors like Gerard Butler and Frank Grillo playing the grizzled yet extraordinarily well-groomed psychopaths that they've been known to play from time to time. You got Joe Carnahan playing to his strengths as he did in movies like Smoke and Aces and The A-Team. He actually uh, made a movie once called Blood, Guts, Bullets, and Octane, <laughs> which is both a good film and uh, quite telling of what he specializes in cinematically for all these years. There are not one, but two extremely impressive performances from actors that are relatively unknown. There is Alexis Louder, who plays the de facto main character of the entire film. Quite impressively, I might add. And there is Toby Huss, a man who you definitely may not be aware of unless you watch the AMC series Halt and Catch Fire. In this movie, he plays just about the most completely unsuspecting, oddly likable, and simultaneously terrifying hitman that you will see on screen for quite some time. In the most brilliant sequence of a low-key brilliant movie, Toby Huss's character is so affable and goofy looking that he is very capable of raiding an entire police station using simply his unsuspecting manner and a set of hot air balloons. What do we got? Thank God you're here. He took quite a spill. He's right back here. You say, uh, yeah. you say he fell? Yeah, yeah. Well, to clarify, I shot him in the head and then he took a little tumble. What? Are you, is that your blood right on my head where I shot you on your head? Imagine that. This is the scene that leads to the last hour of the movie, which is essentially one very intense, claustrophobic action sequence, one after the other after the other. If Cop Shop were a bigger movie, these performances of Alexis Lauder and Toby Huss would be the breakout performances of 2022, and it's not even close. Especially Huss. A lot of people will accuse me of recency bias here, but I don't care. Spider-Man No Way Home is a flat-out masterpiece. It is a top five MCU movie, top seven at least. I mean, if, if I'm being nice here, it's top seven. 
Uh, it establishes Tom Holland as the best Peter Parker of all time. It establishes Andrew Garfield as the best Spider-Man of all time and establishes Tobey Maguire as the most beloved Spider-Man either way. It is a movie that accomplishes so much. And a great example of this is the scene where they're all talking about their past adventures before going into the big battle. So you like make your own web fluid in your body. I'd rather not talk about this. No, I don't mean but to. Are you teasing me? No, 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 no. He's not teasing you. It's just that we can't do that. So naturally we're curious as to how your web situation works. It's all dialogue. And I know that to say that the best part about a Spider-Man movie is the dialogue or a scene that involves nothing but dialogue is kind of crazy. But, but I know you've seen that meme, you know, involving the three Spider-Mans pointing at each other. This was the cinematic equivalent of that. And it was pretty fucking awesome. Like, does it just come out of your wrists or... Does it come out of anywhere else? Yes, the clips of Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire's return to the role elicited all of the cheers that have now been cemented in YouTube clips, similar to the Avengers Endgame clips of everybody crying and screaming. I get that. One way this could have been a disaster is if these three dudes did not have the chemistry that we thought that they could have. And boy, did they meet every single solitary expectation that we had in our heads. What are like some of the craziest villains that you guys have fought? Seems you've met some of them. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I fought a an alien made out of black goo once. Oh, no way. I fought an alien too, on Earth and in space. Oh. Yeah, he was purple. I want to fight an alien. I'm, I'm, I'm still like that you fought an alien in space. <sighs> the main reason why Spider-Man movies have gone on for this long and I think the reason why the hero Spider-Man resonates with certain people in the way that it does is that other superheroes kind of lack the heart and comedy. You need those two things to make anything from a Spider-Man movie good or memorable. And this scene has that in spades. Can, can we rewind it back to the I'm lame part? Because you are not. No, thanks. No, yeah, I appreciate it. I'm not saying I'm lame. But I'm it's just, just the like... self-talk maybe we should, you yeah. know. Listen. Because uh... you're, you're amazing. Just to take it in for a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can you, take it in. No, I can take you it in. are amazing. I can take it in. You are amazing. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Will you say it? No, I kind of needed to hear that. Thank you. There was Godzilla versus Kong. And, and really, it's just Godzilla whooping that ass. I, I ain't even got a particular scene I want to talk about. Godzilla's whooping this motherfucker's ass so consistently and thoroughly at at least three points in this movie, man. Godzilla whoops his ass in the ocean. Godzilla whoops his ass in the second part of the movie up until Kong has to get a lightning-infused hammer or, or whatever the hell it was and gets the second round by cheating... And then in the last time they fight in the middle of the city, Godzilla whoops this man's ass, this monkey's ass, so hard that he actually kills King Kong. And they have to give this motherfucker an EKG so he can get back into the game. And because of the marketing of this film, you had a bunch of dudes talking about King Kong's reach advantage. 
the lack of movement that Godzilla would have simply because of his tail. People were out here making comparisons on Godzilla's arms to that of a T-Rex like they've never seen Godzilla before. And I'm like, what the fuck are you losers talking about? Hmm? He might be physically ready, but Godzilla's not mentally ready for King Kong. Because... You're saying Godzilla's stupid? Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen those arms? I mean, come on. <laughs> what? His arms make him stupid? Yeah. You know Godzilla can't climb. For shit. Well... With his little <laughs> tiny arms. So there he is, and his little penthouse. Why are you going to bring up Godzilla's arms? Because man? let's be real, because he's part dinosaur, part reptile, part amphibian or something, but his arms are like this. No matter what, he can't reach. Godzilla's working with the advantage. He's a radioactive kaiju who can breathe underwater and has nuclear breath. His innards have been infused with radioactive nuclear material, and whenever he fucking wants to, he can shoot hot breath that quite literally has nuclear potency. His fucking scales glow when the shit is charged up. Therefore, when that happens, the fight is completely over, right? Yep. Am I crazy? Was I crazy? Nope. I must have been. Because they were like, fuck you, Eli. Kong has agility. He can gouge his eyes. Kong could choke him out. And then there's King Kong going, all right, so you got your scales or whatever. Well, guess what? I'm going to, rather than just box the crap out of you, I'm going to gravel your ass because I guess, you know, scales, whatever, but he can get around his neck and choke him to death. It's just like, God, die, Godzilla. Like, like, these are the things that I was hearing, and you got to keep in mind, okay? <laughs> We're fresh off of the pandemic here. Like, boxing's been out for a long time. The UFC is sparingly having events, and, and WrestleMania just passed like right before the release of this movie. So, you know, give us a little break here. You know what I mean? Point is, I'm super petty. I was right. Godzilla's effortlessly whooping the fuck out of King Kong all throughout this movie. And I'm patting myself on the back because I was the only Godzilla guy out there. So, I've been an ardent fan of Will Smith for a very, very long time. You'd be hard-pressed not to find a man my age that didn't grow up with his music, didn't grow up with his TV show, and didn't grow up with his films. He is very much an icon amidst icons. He's been very good at doing flashy things, very movie star-ish type stuff. Unless you're counting movie star type stuff, his performance in King Richard is the best he's ever been. One only needs to see any clip of Richard Williams during the 1990s to understand how much he nails the portrayal. Richard Williams is such an outspoken individual that had he disapproved of Will Smith's performance in any way, he most definitely would have made some kind of a public statement about it irregardless of who Will Smith actually was or how powerful he seemed to be in the business. One only knew how different this performance from him was going to be because that trailer came out and there was one clip of that trailer that stuck out amongst anything else. One day my father took me to town. He gave me this money to pay this white man for something. Back in them days, black folks weren't allowed to touch white peoples. So I went to get a man this money and I accidentally touched his hand. And he stopped beating on me. And I look up and I see my father in the crowd. And he took off running. In the film, 
Williams is so apprehensive to let his girls go pro because he sees the pressures of being a child star in a sport like tennis and how it breaks folks. And most notably, they use Jennifer Capriati as an example who, you know, fell into drugs and became rather troubled at a very, very young age. Williams has to relinquish his authority over the career of his young girl, and he has to send her out there to actually do what, at this point, she's been massively hyped to do. This next step you about to take, it, it would be hard for anybody, but for you, you're not going to just be representing you. You're going to be representing every little black girl on earth. And you're going to be the one got to go through that gate. And I just never wanted you to look up and see your daddy running away. My grandmother would have really loved King Richard. I remember the first time I moved out into my own place. My grandmother kind of had this moment with me, like, you know, like it wasn't under the same circumstances of this movie by any means. But as my key parental figure, she kind of had to let me go and be an adult in a way that she hadn't let me go before. And it was very emotional. It was emotional for her. Like I was pretty confused by all the, you know, gamut of emotions that I was seeing, but I get it now. Sonia Sidney and Smith absolutely nailed this scene. Because we've already, you know, seen the end of the Williams sisters' story in a way, this is kind of the climax of this film in this weird sort of way at the end of the second act. Like the moment that Richard Williams lets go and lets the greatness of his kids affect the world in the way that it has in real life today. It's a beautiful scene. There's this movie called Nobody. And it's a total sentimental pick. I mean, you got to keep in mind this movie came out at a time where theaters were limited in their seating arrangements, where people were cautious to get back, and the only people who were there watching this R-rated action movie starring Bob Odenkirk, of all people, were the people who really, really wanted to be there. The people who were willing to be there wearing their masks sitting five to six seats apart from everyone else, nobody had any expectations for this film. And it goes to show that we continuously underestimate Bob Odenkirk. Odenkirk, 56, when he did this movie. And, and what I thought was going to happen was the kind of movie magic that you normally see for Liam Neeson action films. And I don't know if I'm ruining the fantasy here when it comes to your Liam Neeson fixes, I know you guys want to continue to think that he does those fight sequences out here, but there's a lot of chopping and cutting, a lot of flashing camera tricks, a lot of close-ups indicating that yes, he's throwing the punch and the guy is getting hit, but you never see the two at the same time all that much. And if you do, you'll notice that Neeson's character's back is turned to the camera a lot of the time. I hate telling people that. It's like telling them there's no Santa Claus. Anyway, Hutch Manziel, the character that Odenkirk plays in this film, is an actual badass. And he's become so, uh, so transformed by suburban life and his nine to five job that he's kind of out of practice 
when it comes to delivering the violence unlike so many old action guy stars. He gets his ass whooped a lot in this movie. But the thing that makes Manziel unique is that beating on him only makes him fight harder and that is so abundantly clear in this bus scene in which Manziel takes on a group of goons who are harassing a young woman. There's a line of dialogue in this movie that had to have only come from the mind of Bob Odenkirk. It's a particular moment that these old guy movies tend to try and replicate over and over in which the character drops a one-liner before they get to battling each other that makes the audience either clap their hands or have some sort of an emotional reaction. That line, simply put, is... I'm gonna fuck you up. <laughs> I got it. I got it. And if you close your eyes and you just hear it, that sounds pretty badass. But look at that man's face. That is the face of a man who's not necessarily sure he can back up that claim. That's the beauty of this scene. He's figuring it out as he goes along. When he gets thrown out of the bus, for example, I don't know if he has an epiphany or, or whatever, but like the second round of this bus fight goes a lot differently. It's very R-rated, it's very brutal, and it's somewhat bloody. It's about as nice as these types of fights get in 2021 for the entire year. I don't know if there's a fight sequence that bests this. People forget how little hype Encanto had upon its release. People were still adjusting to being back in theaters and all that, and kids weren't really going to see stuff like this like they normally go to see these massive Disney projects. And that's because it wasn't really advertised in the way that these massive Disney projects are. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you look at the press run right now for the Buzz Lightyear movie that's coming out in the summertime, Encanto didn't have a third of that kind of hype. It just kind of existed. Like, it was just going to kind of happen. And upon seeing it, I realized three things instantaneously. One, this movie here was the new Moana. Like, this was going to be the animated film that kids watched 200 times at the expense of their poor suffering parental figures. Number two, this movie classifies as mid-tier Disney. And, and I know it doesn't seem that way right now, but considering the lack of aforementioned hype, combined with movies like Oliver and Company and The Brave Little Toaster and Meet the Robinsons, you know, etc., etc., etc. Encanto at the time was very much a part of that roster of undervalued, overlooked, mid-tier Disney films. Number three. Having said that, it was clear that this movie was very, very superior to all of those mid-tier Disney films you can compare it to. It's the best musical film of 2021, and perhaps the best musical film of the last five years. You know how I know that? You know how I'm sure that it's the best musical film of the last five years? Because I'm looking at all of these fire-ass tracks that are on the soundtrack. Yep. Columbia, Me and Kanto. Good. Family Madrigal. Great. Waiting on a Miracle. Good. Quite possibly one of the biggest songs of 2021. We don't talk about Bruno, of course. Wonderful. Minus the 
Meg the Stallion verse, which is questionable at the very most. And the Oscar-nominated song, Dos Origatas. Good! Now, I might be mispronouncing these Spanish words. Please forgive me if I am. Dos Origatas. It's a good song, right? It's a good song. But when them Oscar nominations came out, and that was the one that got the nom, I think every single person who's familiar with this soundtrack had the same reaction. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. And I think that would largely be in part to the fact that, you know, we don't talk about Bruno was a smash hit. All these months later, it continues to be a smash hit, in the same kind of way that that Post Malone song lived so much longer after Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That, I guess that's the best way I can say that. That would be the no-brainer song to get this nom, right? Well, to some of us, not even Bruno is the best song on this soundtrack, because there's a select few of us out there, and I'm going to include myself with that group, that have zero doubt in their minds that the best song on this soundtrack, the best part about this movie, and the best musical moment of 2021, regardless of whatever other musicals that may have come out during the year, with all due respect, is a song called Surface Pressure. Why would anything be wrong? I'm totally fine. Magic's fine. Louisa's fine. I'm totally not nervous. Your eyes doing the thing. I'm the strong one. I'm not nervous. I'm as tough as the crust of the earth is. Okay. In the musical number in the actual film, it's just a number of scenarios in which Louisa is keeping Maribel from hurting herself or falling into peril. And to anyone who's ever been an older sibling, to anyone who's ever been a parent, to anyone who's ever had a friend or someone close to them struggling with something and you feel like you're consistently having to take care of someone even if you're absolutely powerless to help them, this song hits so hard, it may be a difficult song to listen to. Under the surface, I feel berserk as a tightrope walker in a three-ring circus. Under the surface, was Hercules ever like, yo, I don't wanna fight Cerberus. Under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can be in service. I talk a lot about evil Disney and how they're always trying to make us grown-ups cry out of sadness. And although this isn't like a devastating moment in cinema, like the mini that were in Toy Story 3 or the montage scene in the movie Up, for example, this is definitely something that I can say, you know, like imagine, right? You're just sitting there looking at your kid and hearing this song for the first time. I can only imagine you feel a certain type of way. Lin-Manuel Miranda's true gift is the music. It's not anything he does on stage or anything he does on screen. Although he's pretty good at that stuff too, the gift that he gives the world is the music. And in Encanto, you see it just as much as you see it in anything else that he's ever done, stage, screen, or television. <sighs> I want to give a shout out to all you purists out there. 
All you people who've grown up with the Fast and Furious franchise and really miss how it used to be. Really miss the street racing stuff. You really miss how it used to be about cars and booty shorts and cameos from rappers. All you people who you're clutching your pearls and you're flat out appalled at what the franchise has quote unquote now become. The conversation surrounding F9 after it came out has been some of the most hypocritical shit I've ever seen in my life. And I would like to give a quick and brief history on this franchise. Follow me here, I'm gonna get to my point very soon. Ask any racer, any real racer. It don't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning's winning. Everyone loved Fast Five. Everyone. By all intents and purposes, it is considered to be one of the better action flicks of the 2010s. The Rock came on to this franchise, everybody was hype about it, and it was here at the best point in this franchise with its most popular movie that the laws of physics started regularly getting broken and things became extraordinarily silly. They saw where it was going and they didn't want to say shit about it. So they're just fine justifying the physics of that last chase sequence with the Dodge Chargers and the super huge safes, even though in the chase sequence, those cables never snap on them once. The cars never lose traction when they're whipping around corners with these gigantic safes bouncing around everywhere. But hey, in the sixth movie, I don't know if y'all remember this, but Letty was launched off of the top of a tank over a bridge and then Dom decided to launch himself from the driver's seat of his car to launch himself to the opposite bridge to catch her in midair and they both landed on a nearby windshield and they just walked off and y'all clapped for this shit and y'all were still on board. You guys were still so very appreciative of all of this and I didn't hear complaints from any of you sons of bitches. Hey, you remember in Furious 7 when The Rock drove an ambulance car off of an overpass to land on slash crash into a drone, then double tapped the camera on the drone and then ripped the Gatling gun off of said drone, picked it up, carried it like 40 yards and then fired it at a helicopter with like zero recoil whatsoever. Y'all were still there. They even had the nerve to turn Idris Elba's character in Hobbs and Shaw into a motherfucking robot and nobody complained. None of you, okay? And then Fast 9 comes out and then that trailer hits and Han is back and y'all are just like, I'm appalled. You're appalled. I'm appalled. I just can't believe it. I'm, I'm appalled. And you guys brought the negativity. John Cena's joined the cast. He's Dominic's brother. And y'all were like, Holy Jesus. What is that? What the fuck is that? And y'all just brought further negativity without giving them a chance to explain why they're doing what they're doing. Jordana Brewster was back even though Paul Walker's character is alive and y'all brought even further negativity. Although 
that 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 negativity is justified. I don't know what Paul Walker's character is doing at this point. He's just out here babysitting while his wife goes and saves the world, I, I, I guess. I don't know. But then they went to space. Tyrese and Ludacris became the first African-American non-astronaut space tourists in history. Are you really patching yourself up with duct tape? Yes. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but this whole operation is Band-Aids and duct tape. Man, this is insane. We are headed to outer space. You acting like we're on our way to Home Depot. This is ridiculous, man. I'm about to abort this whole mission and take my black ass home. And boy, oh boy, did you guys become these get-off-my-lawn, pearl-clutching, back-in-my-day type fucking haters. This was the first movie of 2021 that felt like an event movie again. Like, no disrespect to anything that came out before, but you did have to pre-buy tickets to this film in the city. Also, seats were becoming more readily available. This sold out the whole opening weekend in every theater that I could think to go to in the metropolitan Los Angeles area. This movie made $700 million globally post-pandemic, and y'all were hating on it so much to this point where you were all quick to point out that it didn't make as much money as the last Fast and Furious movie that came out in 2017, or Hobbs and Shaw, which came out in 2019. Good for you. Let me ask you guys something. Look at yourself in the mirror, Fast and Furious hater. Do you think you're above this shit? Do you think that you were the guy the whole time that was hating everything equally? You're wrong. This movie does not make the money it does unless people like you stay in your denial. It's not cool to admit that you're on for this next film. Yes, they've split it in two. Yes, Momoa is here. Yes, fucking Brie Larson is here now. They're bringing in the all-star team, the all-Madden team of actors to close this thing out. And they deserve it. And Diesel deserved it. And you know it. But you're just gonna keep hating. You're gonna keep hating out in public, but you're gonna pre-buy that ticket because you, just like me, just like society, We've just gone too far with this, right? Like one of those TV shows that stopped necessarily being what it used to be in season 12 or whatever. You NCIS watchers, you Walking Dead watchers, you know what you have to do. You can't just stop. You're here. You're here with us. Admit that you're being a hater and just move on you're purchasing your tickets to this just like I am don't you forget that hater this episode is brought to you by boss of CMOS the number one CMOS brand in Washington State so what are the benefits of Irish CMOS often touted as a superfood Proponents of this algae claim it can strengthen immunity, improve digestion, and even produce glowing skin over time. 
Irish moss alone contains 92 of the 102 minerals that our bodies need in order to thrive. Boss of Sea Moss is a brand that incorporates Irish sea moss into things like face mask gels and bath bombs. They also have lemonades both in the original flavor and a new strawberry lemonade, as well as two original blends that you can put into smoothies of your own. The original 92 mineral formula and the herbal blend with all 102 minerals support black-owned businesses. Check out Boss of CMOS at their website, bossofcmos.com. Again, that's bossofcmos, S-E-A-M-O-S-S dot com. All one word, by the way. I guess I would like to close by offering up some apologies. I apologize to Keith Thomas, to Jack Garchet, and Earl. Now, I don't know your last name, Earl. That just hit me just a little while ago, so I apologize for not knowing your last name. These are three people I did interviews with over the course of the last couple of months about the underrated films of 2021, the independent movies of 2021, and the MVPs of 2021. These were episodes that I loved that are now forever lost in the ether. The, the MacBook updated, and I didn't save it to the cloud. I saved it on the app that I edit these episodes on, and when that update hit the app, uh, the app erased everything that I had saved on it, and it was gone. Now, as it turns out, people are very busy. People have families and just rescheduling an interview and doing it again I, I think times ran out on what that could possibly be and plus the interviews were so good I know we probably can't recreate that magic from the first interviews so again to those men I apologize from the bottom of my heart I do want to send a shout out to spoiler free reviews uh, that's a website I've been on for the past couple, uh, I say almost a year now. Been writing movie reviews and everything like that, and they've started podcasts of their own, and they've agreed to have this podcast on their website. So blessings to them and everybody on that website who will more than likely be guests on this podcast in the future. Um, I only have a couple more episodes in what was supposed to be my full assessment of 2021 in film. And then later on in the year, probably around Thanksgiving, maybe a little bit after, we will begin to cover 2022 in full. I promise. Thank you for listening. And you've made it to the next episode.